0: All right, let's uh, continue our series this week on using the law lawfully. We'll turn to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. We'll look hopefully at three laws this week. Two of them are really short and one of them is kind of long, so we're going to start with the longer one and see if we have enough time to hit both of the shorter ones after that. Leviticus 25 is where we're going to start looking at the Old Testament law to see if it applies to us as Gentile believers, and if it does, how does it apply to us as Gentile believers. And so looking at, first of all, the law requiring a Sabbath for the land. And the Old Testament command here is found in Leviticus 25, verses 2 through 7. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, Then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard. That which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed for it is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for thee and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle, and for the beasts that are in thy land, shall all the increase thereof be meat. And so here we have a law in the Old Testament that the Jews were commanded to let their fields lie fallow every seventh year. So for six years they would plow, they would sow, and then they would reap. (coughs) In the seventh year, they would do none of that. You would just let the field lie fallow. Now, of course, there's still crops that are in the field. (coughs) They're just growing up uncultivated that seventh year, uh, and they were allowed to eat anything that grew in the field uncultivated, but they couldn't harvest it. The difference there, harvest is done for gain. You're going to harvest it so that you can store it in your storehouse sell it uh, you know keep it to plant next year all that kind of stuff is you're harvesting more than you're gonna eat uh, when you harvest <coughs> but he said it would be meat for you that uh, for you and for anyone else so anything that eat that anything that grows in the field uh, could be eaten during that year but they could not harvest it and the fruit that was produced during the seventh year that was a public property you can see there in verses uh, Five, six, and seven—that it's going to, or verses six and seven, the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, thee and thy servant, thy maid, the hired servant, the stranger that sojourneth with thee, the cattle, and even the beast of the field. That's the wild beast. So it, it's just out there, open for anyone to come and get. Uh, just pluck it off the the vine if it's grapes, and you can use that for your meal that night. Uh, but you're not to harvest it and take it for yourself. It's to be left as public property for whoever is hungry and whoever wants to eat it. And so that was the, the law for allowing the land to lie fallow every seventh year. Now the purpose was to allow nutrients in the soil to be replenished. That purpose is not mentioned anywhere in Scripture, but we know just from studying nature that that's the reason that you allow allow a field to lie fallow uh, every so often. And there are similar plans for uh, crop rotation—that's what that's called. Crop rotation—that's been used throughout history. You've got different people that have uh, had where the field lies fallow every other year. Uh, some cultures, it's every third year the field field is fallow, and other cultures, it's every fourth year. Uh, the, the more modern practice is to use a four-field rotation. You have uh, four different fields in your property, and you, know, you cut it up, cut your property into four fields, and one of those fields each year, a different one, is used to uh, just grow as a pasture. So it's it's just growing pasture uh, crop for your cattle to come in and eat. And then the other three fields are growing your cash crops. And even in doing that, because it's only a four-year rotation, it's uh, still using up the nutrients pretty high. So you plant things like legumes in one of the fields, and you rotate which field has the the legumes that are going to put back the nitrogen. Uh, in the soil that the other plants are taken out, but you can still use those as a cash crop. And then you also have one field that's just as pasture land. You just turn your cattle loose on it, and they can graze, and it lies fallow uh, for that year. That's the modern practice that's been around, been done that way in uh, in Europe and England since I think it's about the mid 17th century, uh, somewhere in there, and it's still being done today that way. Uh, some people are now turning to Heavy emphasis on artificial fertilizers to put those nutrients back so they just keep using the field over and over again using the artificial uh, Fertilization in order to restore the nutrients. I don't think that's going to turn out to be as good They've only been doing that for about 50 years now in some places Uh, So we don't really have a huge amount of data to look at and see how that compares to the way it's been done for uh, 400 years uh, with the other method or genetically modifying the crops, right? Yeah, there's a lot that's done that uh, now that it's kind of new and experimenting and trying different things, and you know may end up finding out that that it works better. May end up finding out it works worse. Uh, but anyway, that's what the the Old Testament was. God set up this system for allowing the the land to lie fallow. It's a a crop rotation system for the Jews, so that every seventh year They did not plant their crops. They did not plow, plant, or harvest Uh, every seventh year. The other six years they did that, but the seventh they did not. So that's the law in the Old Testament. New Testament application of this. Uh, First, we see there's no direct application to Gentile believers in the New Testament. There's nothing in the New Testament saying that Gentiles have to follow this system of crop rotation. Uh, But we can see from nature, and we have seen from nature, and basically all human societies have learned from nature that some form of crop rotation is necessary and so you see a system similar to this in every agricultural society throughout human history but more importantly from a New Testament perspective for, for us as Gentiles understanding this law helps us to understand the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks so let's turn to Daniel chapter 9 Daniel 9, verse 24. <clears throat> Alright, and you know the context here. Uh, Daniel has been studying in the book of Jeremiah, where God said that Israel was going to, or the, the Jews were going to be in captivity to Babylon for 70 years. Seventy years are now complete, and Daniel is praying to God, saying, turn our captivity away. Uh, he's confessing the sins like they were commanded to do in order for God to re- to turn their captivity back. And God sends an angel to Daniel to explain what all is going to happen from here forward with the Jewish nation. And so here we have in verse 24, the angel is speaking to Daniel and says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The streets shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And After threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Alright, so there's a lot there. Uh, Typical of of Bible prophecy uh, it's kind of shrouded in mystery and you have to do a little bit of thinking about it and uh, study of Scripture in order to understand it. The main thing in this Particular prophecy that's confusing to people is the use of the word weeks 70 weeks and if you look at Just about any commentary you pick up on this they're all going to say this is talking about 70 weeks of years, so 70 periods of seven years each and Very few of them In fact, I haven't seen any of them explain why they think that this is 70 weeks of years they just say the Jews have a tradition of referring to groups of seven years as a week of years, uh, and you can look at some of the Jewish historical documents and see that they actually had that tradition, referring to every period of seven years as a week. But those historical documents don't tell you uh, why that was done that way. <coughs> Set that there. We go. All right, but if we look at this law. Uh, requiring the Sabbath of years, we can see why the Jews had this tradition of referring to groups of seven years as a week of years. And since the Jews had that tradition, dating all the way back from the time of Moses, and now you're looking at the time of Daniel many centuries later, but they still have that tradition of referring to groups of seven years as a week of years. And so when this angel appears to Daniel and says, There are 70 weeks determined uh, upon thy people. It would have been natural for any Jew seeing that to think this could be weeks of years. Uh, And so it's not a mystery to them. It's a mystery to us being greatly removed uh, from that culture and from that time period. But it wouldn't have been a mystery to them. They would have understood 70 weeks refers to 70 weeks of years. Now, if you take this prophecy here, you have in verse 25. Know therefore and understand it from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. That commandment is the commandment to Nehemiah to go back and to build Jerusalem. It's given from the, the king of Babylon or king of Persia in this case uh, for him to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. So that's the command that it's referring to here. From that command until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks which is 69 weeks. And then at the end of that, verse 26, and after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself and the people. And so here we have a prophecy, 70 weeks, or 69 weeks rather, of seven years each, you will have the Messiah come and be cut off at the end of that time period. And if you start with just a a round figure or the average figure that's presented out there for the date of Christ's death. It it ranges from 30 to uh, 35 or so. If you just take 33, that's what most people kind of agree on, basically AD 33 uh, for the year of Christ's death. You subtract the number of years it's talking about here, 69 times 7 is 683 you subtract that from AD 33 and you get approximately 450 BC, which is the exact time period that Nehemiah received the commandment to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem was approximately 450 BC give or take five years Uh, but you have 450 BC when he received that commandment 683 years later you have Christ dying on the cross and the reason he died on the cross was to finish the transgression make an end of sin make reconciliation for iniquity bring in everlasting righteousness seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy all that was said in verse number 24 was the reason that Christ died on the cross. And so we can understand this prophecy being a prophecy of Christ and understand that this prophecy was fulfilled accurately uh, when we understand the sabbatical years for the land in Jerusalem and that command in the Old Testament. So that's what we can learn from this to apply to us as Gentiles. Any comments or questions on that one? Quiet today. Mm-hmm. All right, last week you were talking a lot. All right, well, let's move on to the next one. We've got two more that we can hit very quickly. Uh, the first one's extremely easy to go through. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, everyone knows it, says, Thou shalt not steal. A very simple command. So the next prohibition we see in the law is the prohibition against theft. The Jews were prohibited from stealing, and there are other repetitions of that command throughout the Old Testament, we're not going to take the time to look at them, because we're all very familiar with the law against theft. That's the Old Testament command. New Testament application, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 28, Ephesians 4 and verse 28. And I just picked this verse as a single representative of several verses in the New Testament that say basically the same thing. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. And so, stealing is assumed to be wrong in the New Testament. There's not a direct command in the New Testament saying, thou shalt not steal, like there is in the Old Testament but it is assumed to be wrong. And every time theft is mentioned in the New Testament, it is mentioned as if it's something that's wrong and something that's sinful. So we can see that this Old Testament command, thou shalt not steal, still applies to us today as New Testament believers. That's it for that one. So pretty simple, pretty short. Uh, I don't think there's anyone that questions whether that particular Old Testament command still applies to us. Now let's go on to the next one. A little more detailed. This one is the prohibition against removing landmarks. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. This one is often misunderstood by modern day Christians. Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse number 14. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 14. Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark which they of all time have set in thine inheritance which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. So the Jews were prohibited from moving the boundary lines in order to claim property that was not theirs. That's what it's talking about here. The landmarks were the surveyor marks. You know, we have those on our properties now here in America. You can find the, the surveyor, the corners that the surveyors used to mark your own property. There's usually a steel rod there, sometimes there's a ribbon that was tied on the rod, Uh, but there's usually a marker there that marks where the corners of your property are. The Jews had the same thing. They had marks, landmarks to show where the property lines lay after the land was divided up among the the tribes and then divided among the families and then divided among the, the individual houses and they laid out the landmarks, and they were not to ever move those in order to claim property that was not theirs. This is spoken of again in Proverbs 22. And Proverbs 22 is the verse that is often, uh, 22 verse 28, that's the verse that is often misunderstood by modern Christians and misappropriated. So Proverbs 22 verse 28 remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set and there is a whole plethora of christian writings using this one verse and running with it without any consideration of what is actually meant here by remove not the ancient landmark uh, there's people that use this to say uh, you need to make sure that you stay on the the old paths of the the traditions of the church you know, the, the baptists of the past did it this way and we're going to do it this way too because we're not going to remove the ancient landmark and you know that's not what it's talking about here Uh, you may be able to apply the principle that it's talking about a little bit to that but i don't think you could even do that there's other people that use the same verse to say it's wrong to tear down statues that have been up for you know 50 years or so like the the civil war statues that we have uh, around the southeast and people tearing those down and and uh It's wrong to do that because you're removing ancient landmarks, and the Bible says you're not to remove the ancient landmark. That's not what it's talking about either, Uh, and there's a huge range of uh, false teachings that have come about from this particular verse and people not understanding what it means. What it means is don't move the boundary lines for the people that, uh, for the the land, for the people of the Jews, so that they don't steal property that doesn't belong to them. That That meaning is confirmed in just the next chapter of Proverbs. Go to chapter 23, verse number 10. Remove not the old landmark. So again, we have the same statement there. And enter not into the fields of the fatherless. So removing the landmark is what was necessary in order for them to enter into these fields of the fatherless. That means these are children that that own these fields. They don't have a dad that's there to protect them. Uh, and protect their property and so the neighbor decides hey there's no man over there I'm just gonna move this landmark over and claim their field for myself and so that's what is being prohibited here in the book of Proverbs to not move the landmarks not move the boundary markers that separate your field from your neighbor's field and claim property that is not yours Uh, moving the landmarks it is a form of theft and so doing that would fall under the prohibition against theft and the punishment would have been the same punishment that you would have for theft with which we didn't talk about it in the, the lesson today but we did talk about it several uh, months ago the punishment for theft was always restitution uh, restitution with punitive damages as well so you restored back what you took and then you had to pay uh, either fourfold or fivefold uh, in addition to restoring back what you took. And you can look back on a previous lesson to get that information. But the punishment for removing landmarks would have been the same as the punishment for theft. It was a form of theft. Alright, let's look at the New Testament application of this now. How does this apply to us? Well, since it's a form of theft, we would assume that it still applies to us under the commands about thievery or the Instructions about thievery in the New Testament And we can see that's the case if we turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4 First <clears throat> Thessalonians chapter 4 Now the context here is not talking about property theft But there's a statement in the midst of 1 Thessalonians 4.6 That does apply to property theft and so starting in verse 6, we see that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. It's not talking about property theft in particular in this chapter, but it is talking about, about fraud. And uh, fraud is a form of theft. And so he says, we don't want to defraud a brother in any matter. And that would include property theft. And then we can also see that property theft was considered wrong before the law of Moses was even written. We look at Job chapter 24. Of course, Job is, most people think he's a contemporary of Abraham. So he's about that time period of uh, Abraham and Isaac. So this is well before the law was given to Moses. And in Job chapter 24, And in verse number 2, we have a statement. Some remove the landmarks. They violently take away flocks and feed thereof. And so again, it's it's condemning people that do this. Now this is not God talking. Uh, this is I think this is one of Job's friends talking, but I don't remember which one. Um, so it's not God giving a commandment here. But it does show us that the people of that time period Still, recognize that removing boundary lines in order to profit from someone else's property uh, was wrong and should not be uh, allowed. So, that's the command on removing landmarks. We've made it through all three of these today. Still have a little time to spare. It's because y'all didn't interrupt with talking. All right, any comments or questions on this one? Who's that last reference in Job? Was it chapter 21? Job 24. 24. And verse number two. Oh, two. Yep. All right. Anything else? Yes, sir. Well, we will get out a little bit early. Here. Here go. Yeah, go dodge the ring. All right. Well, Jeff, why don't you close this in prayer today?